This is the word of our God, Exodus 20, 18 through 26. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. But Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. But the people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold, but an altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and I will bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. You shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. This is the reading of the Lord's word this morning. Let's pray and ask him to bless it to us. God, as we come before your word, we know that it is true and good, and yet we ask that you would help us to understand it. That you would teach us the truths that lie within it, truths that have not changed since the dawn of time. Lord, help us to hear your word. Speak to us, Lord, and enable us to stand. We pray, Father, that you would lead us towards Jesus. That in all things we would hold Christ above all. That you would lead us to the cross. That you would lead us to the gospel. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, the Bible um, sometimes does uh, this thing where it's, it creates these sections of Scripture that are kind of like concentric circles. Uh, so, that's what's happening in this section. Exodus 19 to 24 is organized in concentric circles. Uh, the outside ring, the outside concentric circle is Exodus 19... Uh, in Exodus 24. So these two chapters form a ring because uh, they are where both chapters describe the appearance of God on the mountain and how Israel binds themselves with an oath uh, to obey the voice of God. But then you move in a ring. And now you have the law of God itself. Uh, this is the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. And then chapters 21 through 23 form the other side of this ring, this concentric ring. And chapters 21 through 23, they, expound, they expand the Ten Commandments and expound them to show how they apply to all of life. And so we'll see that as we go forward in Exodus. So there's already two circles, but in the middle, in the middle of these circles is this passage this morning. Which means that this passage has an important message. That this whole section of scripture has been organized to lead us to the center. And the center is the important central piece of the whole section. And one of the messages that the Lord is communicating in this, in this passage, not the only thing God is saying, but one of the messages he's communicating is that we should fear him. But as we will see, there are improper ways to fear God. There are right ways, and there are wrong ways. There's a fear of God that, that drives us away from God. 
There's a fear that drives us to run from Him, to run in the opposite direction from Him as fast as we can. But true godly fear, the fear that the Lord wants us to have of Him, it doesn't force us to run away from Him. And in fact, it's the opposite. True godly fear drives us to run to Him. And to run to Him in order to worship Him. Those who fear God in the right way, they run to Him in order to worship Him. Because the fruit of true fear, how it shows itself in in your lives, the fruit of true fear is, is worship. And it's simple and pure worship. So those who approach God in simple, pure, fearful worship, He makes a promise. He promises that I will come to you and I will bless you. So that's the message of our passage this morning. This middle of the circle. True fear of God drives you to simple, pure worship. And there he comes to you and he blesses you. But as I said, there are improper ways to fear God even if they may be completely understandable. Uh, In verse 18, it says this, uh, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, smoking, the people were afraid, and they trembled, and they stood far off. Now it's important to note that Israel isn't just afraid of, of a storm, right? This is not just there's some thunder and they're cowering like puppies. It's that... All these words in Hebrew, they're not the usual words for thunder and for lightning. Instead, Israel is seeing the voice and the fire and the blast of the horn and the mountain billowing smoke. And so in fear, they they tremble. In the ESV, it says that they stood far off, but the Hebrew has much more visceral uh, feel to it. They, They recoiled because something supernatural is happening. It's not just there's a storm and it's kind of scary. It's that something unknowable is happening. So you can't blame them. Right? What, if, if we saw God landing on Mount Rainier the same way that he landed on Mount Sinai, I think all of us would get in our cars and we would drive as fast as we could in the opposite direction. Because it is terrifying. It's a voice that splits the heavens and fire and lightning and smoke and billowing and it's, it's supernatural and terrifying. But the fear that Israel has is the kind of fear that drives people to run. In verse 19, they said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. In other words... We'll die if God will talk to us, so you, you go talk to him. Right? Go, go on up there, champ. We're rooting for you, but from over here. Um, but Moses says this in verse 20. He responds, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And you can just imagine Israel going, Wait, don't fear, but fear him. Cool. Um, what does that even mean? What Moses is saying is that Israel has the wrong fear of God. They have a fear that drives them to run away. They see power on display. They rightly, they rightly recognize that there is great danger in God's presence. That he is a lot bigger than them, a lot more powerful, and they don't want to mess with that. And there's some truth there. But their fear is self-protective. 
And so they recoil. They keep their distance. And they, they toss Moses uh, into the lion's den while they stand back to see what will happen. It's self-protective fear. And they're okay trampling someone else to get out of the way. But Moses says, reject that fear. Reject self-protective fear. Because God has come to test you so that you will have the right kind of fear. And as we've mentioned before in Exodus, testing doesn't mean passing an exam. Uh, It can mean purifying by melting down or removing impurities. Uh, But another meaning of of to test could also mean to train. Like how how warriors will, will test themselves against each other in battle. Right, so that they will get stronger, so that they'll get better. So the Lord has come to train Israel in the fear that they should have. Because the fear that they should have is not self-protective fear. The fear they should have is self-prostrating fear. True fear of God is not running away. True fear of God is falling on your face in worship. True fear of God is seeing His power, His His glory, how amazing He is, and falling on your face before Him. Or to put it another way, self-protective fear drives you to, to flee God and all the things of God. I think we've all either been in this place or we know someone who has, uh, who's been running from God. What are the symptoms of running from God? Not reading your Bible. Not praying. Maybe church attendance. Increasingly holding God and other Christians at a distance. I've been there. I'm willing to bet a lot of you have been there too. Or you've run from God. You have turned away from the things of God in fear. Self-protective fear. And there's lots of deep heart reasons that we do these things. Lots of, lots of reasons that we uh, justify for ourselves why we're not following God, why we're not uh, going to Him, and why we're not reading our Bibles and church and all these things. But one of these reasons that we do these things is because we're afraid that if we let God in, if we let Him speak to us, we'll die. Isn't that what Israel was afraid of? If he speaks to us, we'll die. We do the same thing. That we hold God at a distance because we're afraid that if he starts to talk into our lives, it's going to reveal a whole lot of things we don't want revealed. Either things that we want to hold on to, or things we're terrified that he will judge us for. But self-prostrating fear is different. Self-protective fear says, I have to protect myself from God. Self-prostrating fear says, I have nothing. God should kill me. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That is the, the correct fear of God that He wants us to have. To understand who He is and who we are rightly, but not to run, but to go to Him. Someone who truly fears God knows that they do not deserve to be in His presence. But they also know that God is their only hope. And in verses 21 through 23, the Lord begins to tell us what that worship looks like. 
What does it look like when true fear of God drives us to worship? What kind of worship is it? And so he says in verse 21 and following, The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings, and your peace offerings, your sheep, and your oxen. So first Moses goes into the thick darkness where God was. Uh, We're definitely going to talk about that later. Um, And then the Lord speaks to Israel through Moses, saying, Here is where true fear drives you. To worship me simply and purely. True fear drives us to worship God simply and purely. To to offer him simple worship. Now simple worship means worship without adornment. And without showing off. Verse 23, God commands Israel to not make gods of silver or gods of gold to be with me. There's a a few ways to interpret what he means by with me. But I think the upcoming story of the golden calf uh, is the clue. Aaron makes this golden calf, right? Uh, And he says, Behold, the God who brought you out of Egypt. That's what I think it means to make a God of gold with the Lord. To make a God out of gold that's supposed to be God. To represent him. Or "This this is him. Look. Look at this nice bovine statue I made. That's God? Instead, God says Israel is to worship him not with gold, not with idols, not with things made, with with precious shiny things. But he says in verse 24, you shall make for me an altar of dirt. In verse 25, not an altar of hewn stones which means stones that have been quarried and cut to size by a mason. And he says, because if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. But before we can even ask the question why, that, why it profanes it to wield the tool on it, we first have to ask, why does God want us to worship with an altar of dirt? What is God saying? Why does he want us to do this? I think one of the reasons is because an altar of dirt takes all of the focus away from us and away from, look God, look at this great altar I made for you. And it puts all the focus on God. Because God doesn't care how fancy our worship is. We think He does. Because that's how every religion in the world functions. The greater the God, right, the greater the altar needs to be. That's how the world works. That's why the Greeks built these huge temples and altars to all the major gods and adorned them with all the, the, the sculptures and gold and silver and intricate carvings and hewn stones. But the lesser gods, right, what did they get? They got like, you know, a two and a half feet little room where you could go in and worship. Not really adorned, really basic. Maybe it's even built out of just regular old stones you pick off the field. That's what the lesser gods get. And so we think that because God is really great, then we have to build Him a really great house. 
But God says, give me an altar of dirt. We can even look in church history and see how the church has, even in the height of her, of her wealth in the medieval age, built these cathedrals full of stained glass and gold and amazing architecture. But here God says, build me an altar out of dirt. Why? Because it takes the focus away from us, away from how good our worship is, away from how beautiful our surroundings are, away from how amazing the things that we have made are, and it puts all the focus on God. And so we have to ask ourselves, why do we think that God can't be glorified with an altar of dirt? It only seems strange to us because we like shiny things. And so we assume God must like shiny things too. But the reality is that dirt proclaims God's glory. When we believe that our worship of God has to be shiny and adorned, we're saying that God can't be glorified with dirt. But God tells Israel to worship with altars of dirt because he is more concerned with the heart of the one worshiping than he is with the outward glory of the worship. God cares more about the heart of the one worshiping than than how pretty it is, than how well you sing, than how well you pray. God cares more about your heart than those things. He would rather that you worship him sincerely in your basement than to offer him lip service in the most beautiful cathedral in the world. Because he wants simple worship. Worship without adornment. Worship without showing off. Worship without trying to impress other people about how holy you are. This implies, this applies to how you approach God every single day. For instance, prayer. God is far more concerned with your heart while you're praying than he is with how well you are praying. He would rather you pray to him like a a sincere four-year-old than to heap up empty words. Jesus confirms this in Matthew 6 where he says, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. But do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. God desires your simple prayers. They don't need to be fancy. They don't need to be adorned. They don't need to have flowery language. You don't even know what you need to pray for. Because God knows what you need. God just wants you to pray. And it's the same with our sacrifices, with the things that we offer up uh, to God, either daily in our acts of faithfulness or when we come to worship Him at church. Hebrews 13 says this, Through Him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Not, how much money did you give? What amazing things have you done for God this week? How well did you do? That's not what God is concerned with. 
Because God is pleased with altars of dirt. God is pleased with sacrifices of praise. God is pleased when you share what you have, even if you don't have very much. God is pleased to bless you, to accept that worship. And all you need to do is offer him simple worship in faith. And when you do that, when you come to God, fearing him, offering him simple worship without adornment, he makes a promise to you. Verse 24. In all the places where I will make, where I will cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and I will bless you. Before we talk about this verse, first we need to deal with a problem. Because God says, I will come to you. But does that mean that he's going to come in the same way that he came in Sinai? Because that was pretty, pretty terrifying. And in fact, they can't yet see God. Because remember verse 21, we need to deal with the fact that God is dwelling right now in this chapter in darkness. Israel, while they may or may not have been being dramatic, they refuse to approach God in fear, and they, they send Moses. You go talk to God. And in verse 21 it says, So Moses approached God in the darkness, the thick darkness, where God was. Now when God is dwelling in darkness, it means two things. First, it means that he is intentionally hiding himself. Because if he fully revealed himself, if he fully revealed his holiness and his glory to an unholy people, they would melt. And this darkness in verse 21 means that there is a barrier between God and his people. There is a a canyon between creator and creature. Something that we cannot overcome. But darkness also means death and judgment. Because remember, in the ten plagues, one of the plagues that God hit Egypt with was darkness. Three days of darkness. And in Joel 2, the prophet announces that the final day of judgment, the day that is to come, will be a day of darkness. Because darkness is a tool of God's judgment. He dwells in light. And so when he is hiding in darkness, it means bad things. So if God is to keep his promise in verse 24, if God is to do what he says he will do and come to us and bless us, first, that darkness of judgment and division has to be removed. That has to go away. And God teaches us in this passage how it must be dealt with. Verse 21, Moses approached the darkness where God was. If the people cannot face God because of their sin and their unholiness, someone else will have to on their behalf. Someone else will have to face God in the darkness. Someone else will have to face the judgment of God. Someone will have to go to Him and cross that divide and hear Him speak. 
and face him in that wrath and somehow come out alive. That is the only way for the darkness to be dealt with. And so it shouldn't surprise you to learn that on the day that Jesus Christ died, there were three hours of darkness. Even though it was midday, three hours of darkness. And this was because Jesus was entering into it. Jesus was approaching the darkness where God is. On your behalf. And like Moses entering into the darkness on Israel's behalf. But Moses got to walk out. Jesus didn't. Jesus approached the darkness. And God spoke to him a word of judgment. And the Lamb of God died. Jesus was the sacrificial lamb. A peace offering that he was offering himself on an altar, not of gold and silver, but an altar of wood. A simple altar. And there Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice. And his heart was perfect. His life and his worship was perfect in every way. His sacrifice so perfect that it atoned for all of your sins. So if you have faith in Jesus Christ this morning, if you put your trust and your hope in Jesus Christ for salvation alone, your sins are forgiven because Jesus Christ approached the darkness on your behalf. He faced God's judgment. And he lives. Because yes, Jesus died for three days. For three days he was in the darkness of Hades. But he rose again. He walked out alive. And that means that that gap between us and God is gone. There is no more darkness obscuring God. There is no more gap for us to cross. God can now speak to us and we will not die. How? Because we are standing not on our righteousness. We are standing on Christ's perfect righteousness. And so when we come to God in fear, true fear, and worship Him, He keeps this promise. He keeps this promise that when we come to Him to worship, He comes to us and He blesses us. That's what happens every Sunday. And that's why our worship here at Reformation is simple. We don't have lots of adornments. We don't have golden idols. We don't try to show off how holy we are. We're not, we're not the best singers in the world. But yet, God promises that He is pleased with your worship. As simple and basic as it is, He is pleased and He accepts it because He's that good. Because He is glorified with altars of dirt. He is glorified with you. People who do not deserve Him. Sinners who are broken. But he says, come to me, and I will come to you, and I will bless you. And so that's what we have before us this morning in the Lord's Supper. God coming to us and blessing us. 
Because the supper that we will take this morning is one of those blessings that God promises to give to us every week. Every time we worship. Every time God blesses us. Every time He feeds us. And surprise, surprise, it's pretty simple. It's bread. It's wine. There's nothing fancy about the supper. There's nothing adorned about it. And yet, God's presence and His blessing come through it. This is my body, He says. This is my blood, He says. I approach the darkness for you. I will come to you today, and I will bless you. I'd like to invite uh, the elders forward so that we can receive this blessing of God. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the gifts that you have given us. We thank you, Lord, and we pray that you would, you would teach us and train us in the fear that we should have. Lord, please help us to reject that self-protective fear that drives us to run from you. Teach us and train us to run to you, to fall on our faces before you, to confess that we are sinners and we do not deserve to be in your presence. Lord, help us to run to Christ. And Lord, we pray that our worship of you might be simple, that we would not seek to adorn it in order to show off to you or to others, but that we would worship you faithfully in the little ways that you have given us. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you bless us and that you have blessed us. We praise you, Lord, and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.